Good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. Please take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. This morning we're going to look at verses 27 to 36. Several weeks ago, two Navy SEALs were attempting to board an unflagged ship that was apparently carrying weapons from Iran to Yemen. They, in the process of attempting to board the ship, one of them fell into the gap between the naval vessel and the ship. His partner went after him. They searched for them for 11 days. They never discovered their bodies. They performed a selfless, heroic, extraordinary act of sacrifice for the United States and for the world. Most of us, many of us, never served in the military. And of those who have served in the military and done or selfless acts for the good of another that risked loss of their own life or perhaps even died, you never hear about it because they don't talk about it. I once did a funeral, and this makes sense if you follow the logic of a selfless person. I once did a funeral for a, a, a man that I had known since I was a young boy. And when his family was cleaning out his effects before the funeral, they found a silver star with the citation of company. No one knew about it. He never talked about it. He was selfless. He extended himself. We know what it's like for somebody in a heroic moment where they're training their mind, their muscle memory, kick in, and they give of themselves in that epic moment. But what does that look like in real life? What does it look like to be selfless? What does it look like to love as we are loved by God? That's what we discover this morning in Luke chapter 6. Beginning in verse 27, I want to read it in entirety. Partly because as I prepped for this sermon, it was so disruptive, these words. These are words that can make the listener, the hearer, deeply uncomfortable. These are words that we can parse and try to figure out and wonder what the circumstances and situation and what this might look like in different instances. And there are all these, but what abouts? And sometimes we make exceptions that dismiss or diminish or excuse away these words that we're about to read of Jesus. Beginning in verse 27, the opening line should catch our attention. But I say to you who hear... When Jesus speaks, it's the voice that created the world and brought the world into existence. When Jesus speaks, he discloses who God is, who the Father is. He is Son of God, sent here by the Father to disclose the intent of the Father and the will and ways of God. And if we have a personal relationship with this Jesus, if we've confessed Him as our Lord and Savior, He gifts us His Spirit. And here is Spirit, gifted by the Creator, begins to recreate the follower of Jesus Christ. 
So when we hear these words, they are the words of the Son of God. And they are disruptive. Even to believers who have been faithful their entire life in following this Jesus. So, verse 27. I say to you who hear. And to hear his words means that we obey and lean in to listening to what he says. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. We're going to close the service this morning. With Jesus Christ as Savior of the soul who gave his life the ultimate sacrifice and who in the night in which he was betrayed gathered his closest followers around him and gave new significance and meaning to the, to the bread and to the cup. And it's this Jesus that is catalyst that nourishes the human soul in obedience to the words of Jesus Christ. In any gathering of any amount of people, whether it's a family gathering, maybe it's a seasonal gathering, maybe it's a funeral or a wedding. You know, sometimes at weddings, the seating chart is to keep people apart from each other. Because in just about any gathering, you have conflict, you have emotional difficulties, and you have people who have done hurtful things to other people. So how do we live in a place where there are these hurt feelings, and we look in the rearview mirror, and we can remember how we've been hurt. We can become infected with bitterness. It can absolutely devour the human soul. Everything Jesus says in these words, he did. There is no gap between what he says with his lips and how he lived his life. There is a hundred percent correspondence between the words he said and the life that he lived while on earth. So we find, for context in these verses, what this is about. It is about our responsibility and personal relationships. It's not about the governmental responsibility and the restraint 
of evil. The words of Jesus address, address our matrix of personal relationships. Who we are and what we are to do and what we are responsible for in responding to Jesus. These commands by Jesus are not a drop-down menu from which we select one or another, but they are a composite of commands that are a lifestyle commanded by Jesus Christ, driven by our love for the Savior who died for ourselves. So that we would take up our cross and that we would follow Him because we love Him. He says, if you know me, if you love my voice, then we'll do what He says. These words are grace words. There is, is nothing here listed that God has not done for us first. These commands are are not based on how someone else treats me so that another person's wrong doesn't become my excuse for doing that which is just like them. These commands are based on the person of Jesus Christ and who He is and what God has done for us is so compelling that it is catalyst so that we do for others what God has done for us. These verses are in the context of Jesus teaching His disciples. They are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. These words are non-negotiable. There is a change of voice as Jesus begins to say these words. Twelve different verbs are in the form of an imperative. They are a command. They are non-negotiable. You can spot those even in English. But if you read through the Greek text, you can see they stand out. They are to be obeyed. Check out the opening words again of verse 27. He's speaking to those who hear. He's speaking to a large group of disciples who have gathered around, and out of that large group of disciples, as he shares these words that would correct and nourish the soul for the follower of Jesus Christ, they're on the front end of their discipleship. They're just beginning to discover how much there is to know about him. And you and I, as we say yes to him and his word, will become increasingly like him. And by the time we die, we'll know even more than we did today. So that Bishop J.C. Ryle, a giant of a preacher in England, would say that of all the things that will surprise us the most on Resurrection Day will be that we did not love Jesus more than we did before we died. There is so much more to know of him, but this is accessible to us. These words of command, these words that describe an exceptional love for others. What do we find in these verses about this exceptional love? Well, first, an exceptional love for others is counterintuitive to all humanity. Luke six twenty-seven to 30. First command. Love your enemies. So we read these words. They are the words of Jesus. And then we respond by saying, you don't know my enemies. But he does. Our first instinct to our enemies is to pay back, to get revenge. We have a saying, I don't get mad, 
I get even. You can go online and get back at people. You can order a dozen wilted roses and have it sent to them. Or if they don't even deserve dead roses, you can send them a dozen dead rose stems or a box of melted chocolates. Because it's a reflexive act of someone who has been hurt. Jesus models for us what God expects of us. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, and going through verse 11. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So where is the enemy? Apart from Christ, you and I were enemies of God, but we are reconciled. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is mended. It is corrected. It's made right. So that in and through this Jesus, we can be daughters and sons of God. We've been reconciled. We've been saved. Verse 11, and not only this, but we also exult in God to our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So you and I have every reason to exult in this life, right here, right now, because of who He is and what He's done for us. And it's that delight that governs our response and our initiation in hurtful and difficult relationships. Love your enemies, even when we don't feel like it. How do we love? He says, do good to those who hate you. It's counterintuitive. doesn't seem practical. It's, it's not enough just to refuse to fight. It's not enough in some circumstances to flee and run. David wrote a very moving psalm, Psalm 55, where he is wounded by a friend who became an enemy. And he said what his soul wanted to do is sprout wings like a dove and fly away and be at rest. And what does Jesus say? Do good to those who hate you. Do good. Your kids will see it. They absorb it. They'll respect your integrity. If you have to clarify why you're taking this proactive good for another person, then explain it to your children in an age-appropriate way. To do good. To love your enemies even though they hate you. It doesn't stop. Bless those who curse you. My kids were young. They were in sports. I was at a sporting event. The stands were packed. Um, Our coach ran up the score. It's rather embarrassing. The other coach got more and more angry. He began to yell across the court at our coach. 
our coach left his best players on the floor was unjust. Game over. Our coach went over to find what was wrong with the other coach, and the other coach began to yell at him and curse him, and I could hear it clear across the court. So I went over there to separate the two of them, and then the guy turned and took his wrath out on me, and he cussed me out. And I waited for a paragraph or two until he had to take a breath, and when he took a breath, I said, you're partly right. It's on us. We should have taken action as parents. We should have informed the coach. He was only a few people away. We could have walked up to the coach and said, hey, let's back it down. Let's respect these kids on the other team who are doing their best. And we didn't do that. And I'm sorry that as a parent, I didn't exercise my rightful responsibility. He was flabbergasted. And then I said, clearly, you care for your kids. What kind of example did you just set for these kids? And then he goes, I was wrong. He goes, I'm sorry. He goes, will you forgive me? We went out into the parking lot together. Had a nice discussion in the parking lot. Saturday night, late. Sunday morning, I walk into the building. And the coach who cussed me out is in the house. And the other coach, he was in the house. They were both in my direct line of sight. Both would be what you might call unchurched. So I was speaking from the book of Proverbs, and I was speaking on the subject of anger, and the coach who cussed me out came up afterwards, and he said, I I introduced myself to him when I came in the room. I just wanted to get that out of the way right at the start. And he turns to his wife and says, this is the guy I was telling you about last night. So after the service, the first service, he came up with his wife and he said, we don't go to church. And this morning we just thought that we needed to go to church and we had driven by this one. And so we decided to come this morning. So the next Sunday, they're both back. And the subject from the book of Proverbs is marriage, husbands and wives. After the service, he came up again. He said, I'd I'd really like to meet with you, talk with you about something important. Came into my office, and he said, I hate my wife. And I cried out to God for help, and he sent me to you. So his choice was hate. The story for him didn't end with a happy story. His wife, however, tried to reconcile and make the marriage work, and in the process, she came to Christ. And in the process, their child came to Christ. He continued to hate. It was the meal that he ate every day, and it ate him. So it's us, the choice that we have, and she was hated by her husband, and she took the high road, and she began to follow Jesus Christ. And you could see the the transformation in her. Bless those who curse you. Verse 28, command, pray for those who mistreat you. And again, this is counterintuitive to us. 
he says, turn the other cheek. When they strike you, and we're not talking about spousal abuse here. This is an insult. It doesn't have to be physical. It could be a verbal insult. It could be somebody who cusses you out, just as the one, the example that Jesus just, just used. I was once in the presence of a godly man who I greatly admired, and somebody went after him with verbal insult after verbal insult, and he managed. He maintained his composure. And when that angry person left and said, I'm never coming back here again, this godly man, he blessed him. He said, I wish for you God's best. Why could he say that? Because of who Jesus is. And his gratitude to Jesus, even before he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus did. He was without sin. He was on the cross. He took our place. He died our death. He lived the life that we should have died. And we have life because of our faith in this Jesus. So to these people who were doing things that were absolutely unspeakable to the Son of God Himself, He prays for them. What does He say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen followed the example of his Savior, Jesus. Acts 7 Verse 60, they're throwing rocks at him. Eventually, they kill him. And Stephen prays, Lord, don't hold this against them. He prays for them. When we pray for others, it helps us to see them through God's eyes. For who they are. And who only God can change and transform them and us. Only God can soften the heart. So when we pray for them, we invite God into the relationship. He said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when we truly pray to those, for those who mistreat us, we recognize implicitly that God is the only one who can do anything about it, and he is capable and will do this work in our heart. In each case, to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you, is an admission that we are responsible for our own choices and actions, and that the choices and actions of another is not an excuse for us to act like them. So that our actions are not patterned after their choices, but are patterned after the person and practices of Jesus Christ. We see his command to be gracious in our generosity, verse 29. We see the giving of something to meet the need of another person. 
we see God's generosity poured out on us. First Thessalonians 5.15 See to it that no one repay another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and all people. Practice generosity with wisdom and accountability. Because sometimes our helping actually hurts. There's a book about that. Where there are unintended consequences. And so that our generosity might be more about us and the giving of the gift than it is for the true good of the other. So when there is another with a need and you're in relationship and you have accountability, then be generous. Be willing to part with money or resources or actions that, that we have, that, that we can do. It'll show that tangible things on earth, that they're not our God. So that money and possessions don't get their hooks into us. So in a way, this kind of generosity with accountability and wisdom is a tonic for our own heart soothes our best interests before God. An exceptional love like this is counterintuitive to us in our humanity and an exceptional love, secondly, for others to love them like we want to be loved. And I read verses 31 to 34. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. I'm going to pause for just a moment. It's called the golden rule. So I was trapped in the dentist chair this last week, and I was not able to do everything that I would rather have done, and he was doing his job, and he wanted to inquire about me, and what did I do for a living? And I, I, I've got the dodge down. I tried to dodge saying I'm a pastor. So I said, well, I'm about to retire. <laughs> and he goes, what do you do for a living? He asked again. And I said, I'm a pastor. And he goes, what church? And I say, Glenwood Community Church. And the dental assistant speaks up and says, you pastor at Glenwood Community Church? I said, yes. And she said, that is a great church. So I was grateful that she had a good experience with Glenwood, or she obviously knew someone who did, but now the dentist wants to talk, and he wants to talk about this verse, the golden rule. And then I, I told him, well, that's the, the upcoming sermon, this, this very Sunday, so he wanted to talk about the golden rule. I didn't tell him much because I was unable to speak much, and that's a good thing. Some people change the golden rule. It's he who has the gold makes the rules. Some buy in to the iron rule, which is do unto others before they can do unto you. The iron rule, the golden rule. We see who Jesus is and we see how Jesus lived and he says... Treat others the way you want to be treated. Guess what? We want to be treated a certain way. As a person made in the image of God, God placed that desire in you. Children 
long to be loved by their parents and their grandparents. God put that there. He is our Father in and through Christ. So you and I have an instinct. We know what we don't like. And so at the very least, we can treat other people the way we want other people to treat you. It's not, however, a mathematical formula in which I'm nice to you, you're nice to me. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you, and then you have the examples. So if you only love lovable people, what credit is that to you? That's not that hard. We can love people that are lovable. If you do good to those who are kind to you, well, now you have an example of their kindness and how you can treat them and how you can respond to them. But what credit is that to you? What transformative power need be operable in the human heart for us to do that which we'd rather not do? But we want to initiate with the other person. And so then if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? And you have this return to generosity. So treat others how you want to be treated. A long time ago, actually it wasn't that long ago, I, I spoke at a, a men's conference in Seattle. And it was a sizable group of men that were present. And there were about eight speakers. And I was assigned a certain subject. A couple of weeks later, our phone bill needed to be corrected because the phone company got it wrong. So I got on the phone and I went from one person to another person to another person to another person. And that's hard for me. I can feel the frustration. You can feel the thermostat increase in heat. But by God's grace, I, I modulated everything, and I was calm, and I was clear, and I was concise. And finally, I got to this person who was incredibly efficient and effective, and he fixed the problem, and he owned it. And then he goes, thank you, Mr. Jackson, for your business. And I said, thank you. And then he goes... Mr. Jackson, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, in Vancouver? I said, yes. He asked, did you speak at a conference in Seattle two weekends ago? I said, yes, I did. The subject was anger. It was fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I said, yes, I did speak at that conference. And he goes, I know. I was there. I thank God that in those moments of frustration that I didn't do what I have otherwise at other times done and fallen short of treating other people how I want them to treat me. So that you and I are to be other-focused. And the great other is Jesus Christ, who is king of heaven. Who rules on high, is authoritative in who he is and what he says. His love is an exceptional love. 
It is literally a love that's out of this world. What's this exceptional love like? Thirdly, an exceptional love for others models God's love for us. I read again, verse 35. If, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So there is a reward. And you will be sons of the Most High. Well, what is this reward? He himself is kind to great, ungrateful and evil men. Somebody asked me this last week. What rewards are they talking about here? What are these heavenly rewards that are accessible and available to us? I said, well, there are many and they're obvious. There's much we don't know about heaven, but we do know that Jesus Christ will be there. And the reward will be his presence. And we do know that there will be no more tears, no crying. What a great reward. We do know there won't be any sin. We know that when we're in his presence, we won't have a need to confess our sin. We won't even experience the temptation that is common to our humanity. And the list goes on and on and on. He himself is kind. Now that's a great reward. (laughs) And verse 36 is a great reward. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Sometimes we want justice more than mercy. Mercy withholds from us what is rightfully due us. God is just. He does justice perfectly. He's also fully informed in making his judgments and in declaring what is just. He's also merciful. So he withholds from us as followers of Jesus Christ what is our rightful due, so that forgiveness is an extraordinary act of mercy. Justice and mercy, they meet at the cross. They meet at the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, he took on our sin. That's mercy and justice where he declares us, his children, that we are saved, that we are forgiven, that we have his spirit, that we have his word. You know who is incentive for this kind of exceptional love? The Jesus Christ of the Bible. He is our incentive. Responding to him, he's our motivation. He's our strength. The creator whose voice created the world gave us the Spirit who recreates so that we can always say that the best is yet to come. And when we really buy into the truth that God loves us this way and He accepts us through Jesus Christ and breaks down the walls between us for our good so that we can glorify Him in all ways. God wants us to love others. love's sake, in the God of the Bible. So now we get to obey Him. We get to take the bread, which represents this entire list of actions that God would expect of us in which the night in which He was betrayed, He broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. 
And then he took the cup and he said, this is his lifeblood spilled out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And it is an ordinance of the church commanded by Jesus Christ so that we remember him in this communion service. So if you know Jesus Christ, then I invite you to join us as we remember him. And if there is someone that you need to forgive, then do business with God. Ask the Spirit of God to surface things that are unresolved. To trust Him with the difficulties that other people might cause us. That we can repent and return and walk again in fellowship with Him. Would you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your embrace of us, made possible by the obedience and the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for loving the Father and sacrificing your comfort your life for our good. And Holy Spirit, increase in us an even greater gratitude and thankfulness to God. In the name of Jesus, amen.